0: Wars
1: before personalities. So, um, you know, when I was asked to host this meeting, what happened was I, I was already aware of who was going to speak. Now, um, you hear a lot in meetings about people being affected being moved by the reach and out statement and the next speaker moves me beyond that. Now what happened was um, this person called me every day for nine months. I had never been into a cocaine anonymous meeting. He called me every day for nine months and he said to me um, I don't want to talk to the addict. Put my brother on the phone. Doesn't tell us to do that in our literature but that's what he done. (laughs) You know that man I shared a house with growing up with my brother. Um, We never used together because he was a low bottom heroin addict and I was a high class cocaine addict. (laughs) I shouldn't have said that because he's going to speak after me. (laughs) But what I always thought was I thought that he was the person that needed you guys. And the truth is, is, he showed me that I needed you guys as well. You know, and what I seen was I seen a man model recovery. Now what I do is I I judge people on what they do with their feet, not with their lips. It's easy to sit in a meeting and share a black belt about how spiritual you are, and then go home and be arrogant and selfish and and be verbally abusive to your partner and mistreat your children. But what I saw was a man turn from a man who you would cross the street to avoid to a man you would want your daughter to bring home, or your son if he's gay. Um, (laughs) And uh, you know, that's, that's what I saw. Now, you know, nothing, nothing gives me more pleasure than to be able to say that my brother today is a recovered addict and a recovered member of Cocaine Anonymous, thanks to you guys that went before us. Now, it leaves me with nothing more than to say, Mikey, it's your turn, bro. Mikey Williams.
2: Um, do you know what? I got asked to do this chair about six months ago, that's what it feels like, and uh, I've done about a million different chairs in my head. And uh, when you first told me, listen, you're doing the opening speaker for the first European convention, I didn't get asleep that night until about half past four in the morning. And uh, all of you left here crying, having heard of the best chair that you'd ever heard before. <laughs> Bill Wilson, I've shared this in a, a thing before, Bill Wilson turned in his grave like, fuck me, the stuff is working. <laughs> it was amazing, that first chair. Absolutely amazing. So I'm just going to, no matter what I do tonight, I'm going to live off the back of that first chair. <clears throat> um, no, do you know what? see my little brother up here and all of the stuff that he does. He says about how I've helped him. He helps me immensely. And... Uh, I will talk about it a bit, in a minute, about um, some bereavements that we've experienced. And what I would like to do first is, I would like to dedicate this, because this is one of my greatest achievements in recovery. Um, I would like to dedicate this to the loving memory of my mum and my dad. Um, And I know that my mum and dad will be proud. They were to see my little brother announcing me to come up and do this in front of all you people and try and help just one of you. If I get to help one of you out of this speech, I will be absolutely blessed. Um, I'm going to tell you a little bit something about my brother. Um, no, I'm going to get onto my story. No, no. <laughs> I'm going to get onto my story. Um, it talks about it in a big book, it says resentment is the number one offender. Yeah? <laughs>
0: He knows what's coming. <laughs> um,
2: I was about four or five years old and uh, yeah, I was about four or five years old and uh, I had this little robot. This robot was amazing. You could see through it, see all the little wires, it had nine little buttons. You pressed the button and it played a different tune. I was absolutely besotted, obsessed with this robot and i uh, come home one day and uh, there'd been a big pen stuck, stuck through it. Um,
0: <laughs> so it's Ricky Williams' his fault that I'm an addict. <laughs> That's why he says
2: nice things about me. Um, Get onto my chair. You know what? I used to think that I was born an addict. I don't know if I was or if I wasn't. I don't know if it was him stabbing my robot. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if it was my mum and dad giving me too much cowpole to get me to sleep. I have no idea. What I am grateful for is I am grateful, as he mentioned, is that, that reaching out reading that somebody was there to show me exactly how to recover from the threefold illness that I didn't even know that I suffered with. Um, I'm grateful for that stuff. Um, <clears throat> having these, I had this feeling from as young as I can remember and loads of people relate to this stuff and I, I know that I felt this um, but, and it was a conscious thought that I was waiting for this thing to happen for me, when this thing happened I would be alright, everything would be alright with the world and for a five year old kid to be feeling that discontent with himself is not right, I didn't know it then. I know it now and uh, it happened for me um, it happened for me when I was 11 years old and I went to this uh, I went to this 11 year old girl's birthday party I was 11 as well, I went on weird <laughs> <laughs> I'll
0: just get
2: it out there and uh, the 11 year old girl was the best looking girl in that year and uh, I was standing on the back fence, and I was, I didn't know it, I was frightened. I was the hardest boy in the year, why was I frightened? But I was frightened of how they perceived me, I was frightened if they liked me, if they didn't like me, all of that stuff that was going around in my head. And uh, at every 11-year-old party, the mum come up to me, she'd give me a can of beer. She said, uh, have you had a can of beer? or something? no, I drank it. And uh, I was looking into some stuff, and talked talks about. I know we, we relate to the fourth dimension in it. The third dimension was opened up to me. It changed everything. It turned dark to white, it turned truth to, to lies. It changed everything for me. And as soon as I drank that one can of beer, I was relating to everybody. I'd give the best looking girl in a year a big old love bite on her neck. (laughs) I didn't know it was me for 15 years, but I did do it. Um, i actually seen her. We were at a wedding over the weekend. She isn't the best looking girl in our year. (laughs)
0: I'm
2: so glad she's not one of us, because you'd hear me say that. Um, I didn't consciously think I'm gonna be an alcoholic and an addict. That wasn't a, a conscious thought in my head. Um, but I kind of found that thing, that thing that I'd been looking for from the age of five or felt that I needed um, from the age of five, I'd found it. And uh, yeah, my mum would ask me to go to the shop and I'd go to the shop, of course I would, but I would steal a pound and I would somehow um, run around and get another can of beer. And I was problematically drinking from the age of 11. And it wasn't every day, but it was whenever, whatever chance <coughs> I got. Um, my school life was chaotic as a result of that stuff. I got kicked out of school, I was homeschooled, and um, I was just discontent with everything that went on. Um, at the age of 14, I never usually talk about my substances, um, but tonight I'm gonna. Um, at age 14 I started doing heroin. And, uh, Again, that, that third dimension stuff, it did stuff for me that I couldn't do for myself. My head would tell me that I needed to stay up. I had a really pretty young girlfriend. I needed to be up all night shagging. We're not going to cozy up. Um, heroin made me stay up all night shagging. Um, I'm really good in bed, it's my missus is over there. So <laughs> don't get no ideas, ladies. You're right, babe? Just not, babe, just not.
0: <laughs>
2: and uh, so there's some stuff that I was talking about. Like, for me, it got really problematically really quickly. From the age of 16, I got put in a, uh, I put, got put in a sweat box. I had this bright idea. I was going to rob the conservative club. And I got caught pretty quickly. I didn't even spend a penny. Uh, ridiculous. And uh, I went to prison. Now, my ego at the time would tell everybody... Yeah, I was a bad man. As soon as I got in there, everyone feared me and all that stuff. When I was in the sweatbox, I cried my eyes out. But them silent cries, because there was other people on there. I didn't want nobody else to hear me and think that I was weak. And I was muffling that cries. I didn't want no one to hear them. But I just wanted my mum or my dad. I just wanted someone to wrap me up and tell me it would be okay. Um, And it wasn't. But as soon as I got to prison, this is the insanity of it, I felt at home, I felt at one with these people. And it talks about it in Bill's story, a camaraderie um, with these people, it was messed up. Um, all in all, there was 11 years of prison in my story. Um, and I'm not going to talk about all of it because I've only got five minutes left. <laughs> no, I'm not going to talk about all of it. I'll talk about two things. Uh, the first one was my dad. My dad was my absolute everything. And people have heard my chair before. that I mentioned my, fam- my family is very heavily um, talked about in my chair. It was one of the biggest um, regrets that I used to have. Um, but my dad for me, he was, he was my absolute everything. I used to call him my Muhammad Ali. He was my idol. Um, anything that he did, I wanted to do. Um, I constantly wanted to make him happy and proud of me. And I constantly disappointed him and i uh, still not big enough. Uh, constantly disappointed him. And when I got into uh, to the heroin, he didn't talk to me for three years. <coughs> and the experience that I had with that is that my brothers, I would come in and I'd go, you're right, Dad, and he'd just grunt at me. <coughs> and that was the most I was going to get. And my brothers would come in and uh, he would talk to them lovingly and openly and there would be some gaiety and I would be in resentment. Dare he treat me this way? How dare he treat me this way? Forgetting that I had set this ball into motion. His oldest son he wanted to see prosper and do good things and I was ruining my life. Um, But my dad, I got out of jail and uh, he was really, really sick. And I overheard a phone call and it said, uh, he's got a tumor at the bottom of his brain, top of his spine. Um, Instantly, my best thinking told me he's going to (coughs) die. What you need to do is not go to the hospital. If you don't go to the hospital, he'll come home. Um, I got to see my dad once. The next time I was supposed to go and see my dad, I was in the pub. I I'd walked into a pub and my friend was there and he was like, "What are you doing here? You found me you're family. Go mental. You better go and find me. And uh, I was told that my dad had died. And my illness, as talked about in the book, is selfish and self-centred. I went back to my mum's house, and my mum had lost her partner. My two brothers had lost their dad, and uh, I needed some money to get some ease and comfort to help me with this situation and the way that life was going. Um, all these events, I needed something to help me with that stuff. Um, and I used to say really, when I was really, really early on that I didn't care about my brother's feelings or my mum's feelings and that isn't the truth. I've got an illness that doesn't allow me to care. It just tells me you need to go and get the next one and the next one and the next one. Um, and I would get given this money, i get given this money after my dad's few hours um, passed um, with a, a pitiful look. I just go and get it just leave us alone um, the next one is is my mum my mum again she was my everything and we get given a few people in this life that um, I would call confidants people that are always there they don't judge you for the actions that they do uh, the, the actions that you do they judge you for the person that you are my mum was one of them she always loved me cared for me gifted me done for me she always was just there she was my everything and uh, I was in jail and uh, the chaplains come to see me and I've gone and I've taken this phone call and I've spoken to my mum and she said her, Michael I've got 18 months left to live um, I had 21 months left of a prison sentence left to do now any normal person, probably none of you's in here but,
0: <laughs> but
2: any normal person would start that grieving process I didn't, the first thought that ended my head was I need to get something Help me with the way that I feel and stuff that's going on. And I went and I ran and around the wing, and I got this thing and went back to my cell, and I did it, and it was like I could breathe. And in both those situations, one with my mum and one with my dad, I was hiding from the true reality of stuff. I was hiding from life. Um, my mum, she was one of us. She never had the grace to sit in one of these chairs. Um, she was really, really, really strong. She was one of the strongest women I'd ever met and uh, she was telling anybody that would listen, I ain't going nowhere till my Michael gets out. And when I got out of prison 21 months later, she was still there, alive and kicking. And I sat at her bedside and the the threefold illness was all evident in just this one situation. I was irritable, restless and discontent. And I would just simplify that by saying, I was angry, pissed off, I couldn't help the woman that I loved. There was nothing that I could do. And I didn't want to be me because I had to deal with the feelings that I was going through through watching her die. Um, and she, like I said, she was one of my things. She said, Michael, just go. Now, she said something beautiful to my little brother. The last words that she spoke to my little brother, he might treat differently. This is my perception on it. And it's my chair, so shut up. <laughs> <laughs> she said something really beautiful to my brother. And what she said to him was, you're an able, intelligent um, good-looking lad. If you stop your drinking, the world is your oyster." She's a fucking liar. No, I'm joking.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I get it um,
2: but there's some beautiful words to hear from your mum on her deathbed. Um, the last words that I heard my mum speak was, um, Michael, just go, you'll do this when you're ready. And I verbalised it and I said, no, mum, I want to be here. And I did, with every fibre of my being, I wanted to be at the bedside. And then that, the mental obsession kicked off and had this thought that overrode any other thought. And it said, just go, you'll be back in a few hours. And I said, mummy, you know what, I'm going to go and I'll be back in a few hours. Now, disregarded that I've never gone for an hour, or two hours, or three hours, like my brother, um, not so eloquently put, I'm a low-bottom cracking heroin addict. It's the truth. I'll get caught running out of ASDAs with a joint of meat. How much ASDAs? That never happened. It didn't happen.
0: Um,
2: I never go for an hour or two hours or a day or a week. I go until the police uh, get hold of me and say, You're, you're under arrest. We've got warrants for your arrest. That's the only thing that can stop me. And as I walk out of my grandmother's front door, because my grandmother and my little brother is looking after my mum, I confirm it to myself I'll be back in a few hours. And uh, I go and put one inside me, physical allergy kicks off, and that's it. All bets are off. I get a phone call three days later, and you better get back here before the body's gone. And uh, I'm like, yeah, of course, I've got a pedal bike, I'll be there in a minute. Mm -hmm. Um, And I get back there, the body's gone. I've got my grandmother grieving, she's lost her daughter. My auntie, she's grieving, she's lost her sister. My two brothers say, Michael stay, we need you. They're crying, we need you. And again, I, I care. I love these people dearly, but I've got an illness that overrides even my feelings. Um, And that page 24 describes it so eloquently, but I'll paraphrase it. It will not allow me to bring into my consciousness with sufficient enough force the pain and misery that I caused my family. It won't allow me to do it. It'll just say, just do it one more time. It'll be different this time. And they give me that money again with a pitiful look and I've left my brothers crying, they need their big brother. I've left my grandmother, she needs her grandson. Um, and I go, what can I use? And I get this thing that we call ease and comfort. Um, I call it hiding from reality. <laughs>
0: um,
2: and all the relationships in my life, and that's why I think it's a big part of my story, is um, all the relationships in my life go on the exact same lines. Children are disregarded. I had a son that was holding onto my leg, i just done a like two-year prison sentence. And he's crying, Daddy, don't go. My oh, son, it's all right. I'm just going to the shop. And if I would have gone through a lie detector at that point, I would just go to the shop and I'll be back. And the next time he sees me, is two years later. Um, every relationship played along the same lines. Um, I don't know if she's in here. I hope she's not.
0: What? Um, <laughs> right.
2: I went into this crack house. Um... Do you know what? In that crack house, there was, I truly believe it was a vessel of God. Um, There was, I was going to do a different chair at the beginning. I was going to mention some people that i passed a result with this illness. I'll probably mention them at the end, but there's one that I'll mention now, Vinnie Barlow. Um, We went to this flat and uh, it was a crack house, but it was the best crack house I'd ever been in. (laughs) had a telly, had a carpet. (laughs) A free piece of and it was a and I was solved. <laughs>
0: um,
2: but also, there was this crackhead girl that was in there, and uh, she'd had a bit of recovery before. I, I had never heard of recovery. She'd had a bit of recovery, and she was, uh, she was basically twelve stepping us over a crack pipe.
0: <laughs>
2: it didn't work for me. Um, but I, uh, I made myself at home and for me i i'd met loads of addicts of my variety before but i'd never really stuck around them and uh what happened is i went back to jail again as i usually do because i'm a <coughs> shockingly bad criminal <laughs> there. Um, but she started sending me letters she went to treatment and she was sending me letters all lovely letters and i wasn't really reading it i was still on substances and whatever but i got out of jail and i went around to her house and um There was a vision in front of me, a vision that I'd always wanted. Um, From the age of 24, this is what my illness told me, I've got a head that tells me I'm useless, I'm nothing, I'll never amount to anything. Um, I'm going to die, lonely, addict. That's what's going to happen. And I'm content with that. Um, So when I see this girl, she was clean, she was sober, she was a productive member of society, she was... It was amazing to see it. It Something that I'd always envied in people, not jealousy, just envy because I thought I'd never get it. And uh, I said, what, what are you doing? She's like, I'll go to these CA meetings. I'm like, all right, yeah, I'll come with you. So I went to the CA meeting, and uh, I've got this ego, this false perception of myself that tells me I'm a gangster. I've done loads of jail, no one can touch me. Um, so I go to the CA meeting, and I'm go with that ego, that false perception of self, and I've got my arms crossed. <laughs> And uh, I'm staring at people um, just don't come nowhere near me. I'm winking at the ladies, but just so those don't come nowhere near me. And uh, yeah, internally I was screaming out. I was dying. I needed some help. But I had too much pride to ask for it. Too much pride to ask for it. Then I uh, went back to jail again. Um, Something happened for me though, is I started coming to these meetings and I started feeling a little bit of regret and a little bit of guilt about coming to these meetings and disrespecting what you people were doing. And I didn't believe everybody. There was a few people and I thought he's definitely fucking using. Not going to stay of him <laughs> <laughs> There's no way he's six years. there's no way. Um, but yeah, I started feeling guilty about stuff and. Uh, I got told to find a sponsor and he had to be black,
0: some of heard this
2: already, um, he had to have two gold teeth, I didn't have none, but he had to have a couple, and he had to have nice trainers, he had to have nice trainers, he had to, have, he had to have. and he had to have had a carbon copy of my life to understand the complexities of who I really am, and uh, after two weeks I didn't try to do <laughs> So, what I did was, I thought, you know what, I'm going to do this myself. And I got a phone call in that time. Yeah, another touch of step, another got a sponsor. Uh, I got a phone call, it was from a friend who just got out of jail from an armed robbery charge. My best thinking told me what you need to do is you need to go and see him and show him the power that you've got.
0: Brilliant
2: thinking. So I sat down next to him and I was like, yeah, I'm doing these things over. You can do it too.
0: <laughs>
1: and he said, shall we get something? I was like, yeah, let's go. <laughs> really
0: good idea, right?
2: But in the book, without defense against the first one it isn 't the first one that caused me problems it 's the thinking before it that precedes it. Um, what happened for me though is I went back to jail and uh, i 'd done like i said i 'd done 11 years behind a prison cell door prison didn 't phase me. I was in this delusion that prison was okay. I was okay with prison. Um, but I went back to prison way before that w- whilst I was at two weeks clean um, I was going to see my my brother, a good-looking one, not that one. I was going to see my brother, and uh, he's got a family, he's got a job, um, he's that productive member of society that I've always looked to, towards and wanted to aspire to be. And uh, I was going to his house, and he was telling me the woes of his life about his married life and about the kids doing his editing and the bills and all of that stuff. And I was just talking to him, and just like really trying to just help him the best I could and I remember, I was on benefits, I hadn't even got a gyro, I remember skipping along the road with a purpose for the first time in my life, a purpose that I'd never had before, other than the getting and the using of a substance. Um, I, can, I can remember it now like it was yesterday. Um, so then that thing happened with the old arm of a friend and I was back in jail and um, and I don't say this for effect, so it's a sort of truth. Um, I was there, and uh, I was suicidal. I wanted to kill myself. Not just myself, my bad mate, because it was his fault.
0: <laughs> 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 I've got to take someone with me. Um,
2: um, now, a spiritual experience happened for me in that cell, and I'm not going to say I don't care if you believe it, because I do, of course I do but more importantly, I believe it. What happened to me is, I'm sitting in this cell and I've got these suicidal thoughts, how I'm gonna kill myself, and what happened is this uh, little clear perspective window opened. And it was like the wreckage of my past in a flash was shown to me that it wasn't anybody else's fault, and I'll get to that in a minute, um, but it was all my fault and what am I going to do and I don't know if it was God if it was that not in my stomach that I call my spirit it was its last dying attempt to not die um, to not give up um, I don't know what it was but for whatever it was I was aware of it for a second um, and I would love to say that that's where my, star- uh, my story started and I was clean and sober from there on out um, but it wasn't like I was in jail for another nine months after that, and when it talks about using against your will, I know what that means because I've experienced it. I was walking along the landings, and I, my thinking is telling me, you don't want to do this. Not, not I don't. You don't. That's fucked up. <laughs> you don't want to do this, who the fuck said that? <laughs> I was like, another one, we shouldn't do this. Who? Who, who, we? So they'd say, you don't want to do this. You don't want to do this. And I'd walk along and I'm feeling so depressed. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. And I'd get it. And I'd be walking back to myself and I'd be going, I don't want to do this. And I would do it. And I'd say, how the fuck did you do that? (laughs) Against my will. And that happened for nine months. I used against my role. And, uh, yeah, for me, it was that little crackhead that I met in that flat, the one that I got clean and sober. I got back out and I went to hers, and she put things into place for me to go into this dry house. And, uh, it didn't happen straight away. I was bombarded with my thinking, obsessing about this and that, and how to get, and all of the other stuff. And, uh, I put some action in. I phoned the up and said, listen, can I come in? I was like, yeah, come up on Monday. When I left her front door, it was the first time I'd ever put some action into finding out the reason for that question. Why am I so fucked up? Why do I keep doing it? And I went to a meeting, and the meeting I went to was Perry Vale meeting um, on Friday night at 7 o'clock. 7.30? 7.30. Amazing meeting. I'll get to that in a minute. But I went up to a man... And he couldn't be further removed from the sponsor I talked to about a minute ago. The black dude with the gold teeth and the nice trainers. This fellow had flip-flops, a tweed jacket, big, thick glasses. I'm not going to say what I usually say in my chairs. <laughs> no, I'm not saying it, I'm not saying it. Um, but that man lovingly put his hand... I went up to him and, like, that pride that I had before, um, I went up to him and said, can you help me? He so said, just like... Um, I went through the steps. It wasn't with that man. He told me that he was an ex police officer.
0: <laughs>
2: so I was like, yeah, this ain't gonna work, mate.
0: <laughs> <Anyway>. <laughs>
2: then I got a new sponsor. Mm-hmm. Now this sponsor had everything that I wanted. Everything. He was driving a nasty Martin. He had a Armani suit on. I think he might have two watches on. I'm not too sure. We yeah, had yeah, everything. Um, little did I know that he was using during our journey, and that's his stuff my stuff. But when I was going halfway through my step four, and uh, he then comes out and tells me, yeah, you have to get me a new sponsor I've been using. I was like, my God, I can't share this with no one. It's going to kill him. It's going to kill him. I can't share my step four with no one. But then I found somebody else. Um, this man was of my variety. He. Uh, do you know what, I won't talk about all the steps. I was fearless and far up and honest through all of my steps, until I got to step four. <laughs> <laughs> step four.
0: No,
2: no. But when I sat down and I was doing this vibe with this man, um, he was like no shit he was like I'm not giving you an hour to consider proposals what have you not told me? Yeah. Two. yeah this is two things and I told him then two things from there on out my steps were fearless far up and honest and uh, I'm not going to talk about all the steps talk about my step eight um, how long have I gone? Wow. cool um, step eight for me was a magical moment Step nine for me was a magical moment. I wrote these letters to my mum and my dad. Now my mum was somebody that was always there for me, like I mentioned. Um, After my dad died, this is just one of the experiences. After my dad died, my dad proposed to my mum, asked her to marry him. Um, That promise lasted for 18 years. (laughs) Only my brother's laughing at that, but I feel great. I'm going to try and get away with it. I'm only joking, babe. <laughs> uh, so he proposed to my mum, and he'd give her this engagement ring. It was a lovely ring. And uh, about two weeks after my dad had passed away, my mum went away. And when she came come back, in that period, I'd had this thought, what I need to do is I need to go and pawn this ring, and then I'll bring it back. I've got enough time to go and get it back and bring it back. And uh, she got back off her little holiday through our grieving process. And she says, Michael, have you stolen the ring? I was like, Yes, Mum. And she didn't kick off, or scream, or hit me like she used to. um, And I would swear that I see her heartbreak as she turned around and walked off, (coughs) away from me. Now, when I was going through these steps, my my head will tell me that I can't be forgiven for that stuff. You sold the promise that you made, that your dad made to your mum. Be forgiven for that your mum is never gonna forgive you for that um, and I was writing these step eight letters and I was admitting my part not their part because I don't know about you but I was still in the back of my head thinking it was because she was an alcoholic that's why I'm an addict it's because I was raised in a council estate but when I truly honestly looked at it um, they did the best that they could they raised me to be a decent caring kind human being um, and I went to the graveside and made these amends. Now, like I said, I was a low-bottom cracking heroin addict. And I had one of these plastic um, folders. I don't know where the fuck I got it from. Um, but I had one. Uh, it was in June. It was a nice hot, hot summer day. And I went there with these two letters, feeling proud of myself for doing the Step 9 stuff, putting the action in. And as soon as I get to the side of the grave, it's like the heavens opened the brain and the wind was blowing a gale. Now I've got these two letters in this plastic wallet. I didn't see the experience I was having at the time. Um, And I was able, through my tears and through the rain and the wind, to read these letters and honestly and sincerely say I'm sorry. And as I walked away from the grave and I stood at the side of the crematorium waiting for my taxi, the sun shone. Again, I didn't see the experience. I truly believe, at that moment, when I was at that graveside, I was forgiven. My mum and dad were crying that they'd got their boy back. Um, It took me a little while longer to forgive myself for that stuff. But today I do. Today I know it's because of uh, a powerlessness over my thinking that I will disregard and steal and do all of the stuff that I do. Um, I I wasn't a bad person, I was a sick one. So uh, I've come into fellowship and I've come into it with ferocity. There was only one reason for that, if the truth be known, is i had oh, fuck all else. It's the truth. I didn't have a family that wanted to talk to me. I didn't have no friends. I didn't have nothing. Um used all my friends. Use all the ones that are saying, how you doing mate, you right, do you want a cup of tea? Yes I, I do. I want a cup of tea. But can you make that coffee?
0: <laughs> um,
2: so I looked up and I aspired to people that was going before me. I didn't look up with jealousy or even envy. I looked and I thought, right, how am I going about this thing? Because I'm not a stupid person. Um, so I was looking at people and what they're doing and they told me about commitments. It's like, cool, H and I. Call. H&I, um, I did a little T commitment. I loved it. I was on a gyro, and I would go and I would spend about 20 quid on biscuits and fancy coffees. <laughs> then I would starve for about six days, but <laughs> that wasn't all right. They had nice biscuits. Um, H&I for me was a pivotal moment in my using. Um, I was in Bedford Prison, and there was a woman in there. Um, she brought AA in there. Uh, I know it's a different fellowship, but this is my story. They brought A.A. in there, and this man, he talks and stuff, and I didn't understand a word that he said, but I knew that he'd come out of his way to do some stuff. And she gave me a little big book, and uh, this little big book, I didn't know the importance of it. I read it about four or five times after it, didn't understand a word of it. Um, But there's another fellow that's in this fellowship as we speak. Um, His name is Ben L. He's not in this room, I don't believe, if he is, put your hand up. You only five pounds? No, I'm joking. (laughs) Um, I went back into that cell, and he said what he saw was somebody that was lit up with something that he'd never seen before. Because I was a horrible, horrible person, but he'd seen something that he'd never seen before. Somebody lit up with a possible way out. I can only imagine. so H&I, I went along to a and i meeting, it was then London District, and I was like, I want this commitment. They were like, you've not got long enough, you're only six months. So I put in, i like, can I go along there and do some stuff, speak to them? And they were like, yeah, cool, if you want. They just wanted to get rid of me, I think. Um, and at six months, they kind of said, yeah, do it, just go away, <laughs> please. Um, I pestered and badgered my way into loads and loads of circles. Um when I got through the steps, I didn't have a sponsee for about three months and I was all really, Mister Cool call about it, it's cool, it's cool, and there was this one fella that got one, he was a really scrawny little fella, I don't know why that affected me so much. Um, but when he got a sponsee, I started praying for it, I was like, if he can get one fucking a come on, God, give me a sponsee, and God inundated me with sponsees, and again I was in a privileged position, I had nothing and no one to, to look after, no responsibilities, um, and I was able to try and help these people as they was coming through, uh, coming along my path. Um, it was beautiful. I wouldn't change it for the world. Um, I've not been out of service in all the time that I've been in, and that's nearly seven years. Like, there's no other way for me. Do you know what this this convention here is even more special? Because I go to all the conventions, I like, absolutely fucking love them. I love them. Um, this convention's even more special for me. Um, my uh, little brother and me went to Denmark for the uh, regional assembly. Like, like when I say my little brother espi- uh, um, inspires me, he does because he goes to all of these things. He's out in America and all of this shit. I'm thinking I have to step my game up. <laughs>
0: And uh, so, yeah,
2: me and my brother went along to Denmark, did Ricks? And uh, my missus weren't too fucking happy. <laughs> why can't I? <why> because <laughs> um, you
0: can't.
2: <laughs> You're sitting pretty close to her there, Ricks. <laughs> um, so, we went along to the regional assembly and. Uh, it, like the stuff that he knows around this stuff he knows more than around the traditional stuff than me. but again I sat there with pride looking at my little brother putting forward a proposal for Central Area to hold this convention and I was full of pride for my little brother absolutely filled with it another blessing that I've had um, he talked about that story I'll tell you the true story he, uh, I was phoning him up and at first I did I tried to bash him in a big book and I did say to him, I don't want to talk to the addict. Put Ricky on the phone. I did say all that stuff. And my then sponsor was in this room. Um, he said to me, you can't do that. You need to attract him into this stuff. not promoting it to him. I'm like, all right, I'll do that. And now there is nothing that I've experienced worse in recovery than speaking to my brother after he expressed that he tried to kill himself that night. Knowing that I can't do fucking nothing to save him. All I can say is, do you think that is normal? He went, yeah. I went, okay. And a few weeks later, he phoned me up and he was like, I need some help. Now, I'd heard this repeatedly, loads of times, i to put measures into place for him to be helped. And uh, he'd always go, yeah, fuck it, I'm not doing it. <laughs> Fuck you too.
1: <laughs>
0: and uh, this
2: one time he phoned me up and he was like, I need some help. And I was like, just phone me when you're ready. He's like, I'm ready. Like, okay. Then. And uh, I got him on the Tuesday. And uh, I went out, did some stuff, come back. He thought he had, what was it? Yeah, he thought he was buying polo. you do? <laughs> um, and I brought him to his first meeting and at that first meeting I picked up my 9 key ring he picked up his white key ring and that meeting again was the pair 7.30 on Friday night absolutely powerful meeting yeah I'm representing you I need some money <laughs> <laughs> um, but I've heard my brother talk loads of times but there was one particular time that I'd actually heard what he was saying and the journey that he'd gone from that desolate place um, of addiction to the place that he was at. He's at university, doing a master's, doing a degree, amazing stuff. He's followed in my footsteps. Like when I was in addiction, he did everything that I did. I projected to him what he should be. Then I come into recovery, it took him nine months, but he was like, I want to be what he is now. Not what he was then, because he didn't want to be that. Um, I went to university, he's gone to university Uh, When I went to university on graduation, I was there with my pregnant partner, with my my baby. My baby. Um, Amazing moment in my life. And when I graduated, it was um, Kate Middleton, Princess of wherever she is. (laughs) Shook my hand, said congratulations. She's got cold hands. I've got pictures. I'll show you pictures. Um, my life as a result of coming into this program is a life. Like when I, Before I come into this program, I was ready to make that supreme sacrifice. Um, and when I said at the beginning I was going to do a different chair, I was going to name some people that I had lost as a result of this illness. Roy C. died at the age of 24 because he couldn't live life using drugs anymore. Carl, overdosed at the age of 28, I think he was. Um, because he just couldn't stop. Robert, he found a solution to his heroin addiction. He started drinking and died of pancreatic... That pancreas thing first. James... James was somebody that I met when I very first come in. A massive part of my recovery. Give me that second sponsor, the one with the Amani suit and stuff. Um, but he was a massive part of my recovery. At two years clean and sober, he couldn't enlarge on his spiritual experience, um, his spiritual life, and he took his own life. He was found two weeks later by his father. Then there's another person. When I was in that flat, in that crack house with the couch and the fancy carpet and the shitty TV, um, Vinny Barlow was my friend a dear friend in addiction and you don't find many of them he slapped me out of my stupidness a few times when we were sitting in that crack house Vinny Barlow and me and this girl has gone through this program she's got these share CDs and she's put this one on that's really really funny now I'm in the grips of addiction and I don't give a shit what you're putting on the radio I just want to do the next one how are we getting some more but he keeps on telling me shut up I'm listening to this I'm listening to this I want what these people have um, I didn't. I didn't want a fucking thing of what you'd had. I was a happy, deluded addict until I met you. <laughs> <laughs> but he wanted it. Um, Vinny died at the age of 20, uh, 38. He crashed his car and killed himself and his girlfriend. He was unable to put his bum on one of these seats because he just was unable to. Yeah. Like i, I I'm not going to finish on that. That's <laughs> pretty, pretty depressing. <laughs> um, like, but I need to let you know that this shit is serious. Not just for me. My life is on the line. And to quote Superman, "With great responsibility comes great power."
0: <laughs>
2: like I'm sticking my hand out and reaching out, uh, reading. I'm reaching my hand out to save people's lives. I'm not there to be their fucking counsellor. I'm not there to be their mother, their financial advisor. I'm there to tell them how to beat the disease of addiction. That is fucking it. If I'm telling them my opinions on stuff, I'm fucking killing people. I'm sorry about the swearing, but I don't give up.
0: <laughs>
2: like, we need to have some responsibility about what we're doing to these people in these rooms. They're looking at us... With admiration. They want what we've got. Let's just tell them about how to beat the disease of addiction. If you've got any other problem, seek somebody else's help. I can tell you how to beat the threefold of addiction. I can tell you how to do it on a daily fucking basis. Um, I'd like to finish my chair on this. Um, With all the misery and depression that we've been through, the dark places that we've been through, the people die as a result of this illness. Um, last year, I was so fucking awe-inspired when I see Richard L get up on the stage and say, um, I've put my service ahead of my hip, uh, illness. Uh, I've just been diagnosed with cancer, and I'm here to share that with you. Um, I would like to finish my chair on saying, my name is Richard Lucas. So I died in soap, but I love you all.
1: So what we're going to do is we're going to have a, um, we're going to have the reach and out reading. It's touched us all. We're all here because of somebody else. Now, um, Jason is going to come and read the reach out reading. Thank you.